Take your Bible and turn to uh, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that I would believe that your personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important issue in your life. It's more important than the career you have, the money you make, the family that you choose to have. Uh, because Jesus Christ and your relationship with him will last throughout eternity. And there's coming a day, we don't like to think about it, but there's coming a day when each one of us will draw our final breath. And the question I have for you today is whether you're ready for that. And I think most of us here would say, yeah, I think I'm ready. You know, I've been born again. And, and that's good, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's important. That's the most important thing, that you're born again. But I want to look at it a little bit differently. Are you ready for that time in your family's life and your loved one's life and your business relationship associates' lives um, when you're not here anymore? In other words, what are you doing right now to prepare your family for that day? What are you doing right now with your life to prepare your loved ones, your friends, for the time when you will no longer be here? Uh, when, when, what are you doing in your life to prepare your business associates for that particular time? And, you know, when we think about sort of those preparations, when the end might be coming, and probably none of us here in this room just have that foreboding sense that it's going to be anytime soon. But when you think about that, you always sort of think, okay, we're talking about finances, right? You know, life insurance policies and stuff like that. But it's really more than that. It's, there's something more important than that. The question is, what have we done to prepare the next generation to live their lives for Christ? Because we have a limited amount of time here on this earth to influence our family, to influence those at school, at work, wherever we might go. We have a limited number of days to influence them for Christ. And so the question really for me uh, to ask you is this. Are you being faithful in your marriage? Are you being faithful as a parent? Are you being faithful at work in your relationship with Christ? Have you exhibited servant leadership in the different areas of your life? Do they see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of the fruit of the Spirit. Is that an active thing in your life? Are you improving, if you will, on those qualities? Are there skills that need to be taught to that next generation so that they can be prepared to live for Christ? You see, in Mark chapter 6, one of the lessons that I think we learn is this. Everything Jesus did was to prepare his disciples for when he was gone. And I want you to think about that. I believe that Jesus had an awareness about him that every single day was a step closer to him no longer being with those disciples. Think about it. At the very beginning of his ministry, I believe he knew that he had approximately 1,200 days. 1,200 days to influence 12 disciples who would change the world. He had to use that time wisely. He had to have a goal in mind, and he had to live every day with the knowledge that there would be a day coming soon that he would no longer be with them. He had to teach this handful of men, and these weren't trained rabbis. 
These were fishermen and carpenters and just regular old guys. One was even probably a teenager, John. He had to teach these guys how they would be used by God to build his kingdom throughout the entire earth. 1,200 days. And if you're Jesus, that's your task. And the clock is ticking every single moment, every single day. I mean, if someone told you today, you have 1,200 days before you're gone from this world, how would you react to that? Would that cause you to think about your life's purpose? How would you spend those days? In Psalm 90, verse 2, the psalmist said these words, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Number our days. How many days do you have left? I mean, let's say we all live to be 80 years old. That's a nice round number, a little bit beyond the life expectancy for most of us. Let's say we live to be 80. How many days is that for you? I heard about one Southern Baptist pastor. He told the story about how he got a giant jar, a really big jar. And he was about 40 years old at the time. And he went down to a toy store and uh, bought every marble that they, could, that they had. And he got the approximate number of marbles that he thought he would live. Each day represent, or marble represent one day. And he poured it all into the jar. Every single day, he took a marble out of the jar. Took a marble out of the jar. And he saw this diminishing number of marbles until finally he lost his marbles. No, I made that part up. But he had this diminishing number of marbles uh, there in this jar. And it was a visual reminder that the clock is ticking. He has a limited number of days to do the work that God had called him to do. That's true of us. It's absolutely true of us. I want you to remember this. God gave you life. He gave you life. He put you in this place at this time with your family and your friends and your loved ones and your co-workers and all of that. He gave you, he put you in this place for a reason. He gave you life. So what are you living for? What are you living for? Just to exist? Is it just to sort of get by? Is it just, I'm in survival mode. I just need to survive this day and I'll be okay. Or are you living for God's purposes? Imagine if you would, if you were one of the disciples that we will read about in Mark chapter 6. And if you were one of these disciples, this would have been your story in recent days. Jesus, this guy that you had left family and friends and your workplace for, you've decided to follow him. He gave you a very important mission, a task. You completed the task. You went into some villages, paired up with someone else, and you did two things. You healed people, and you preached the gospel. That's what Jesus told you to do. You went out and you did it. Success. He had a successful ministry. By the way, Jesus was teaching again. He was teaching his followers the methodology that they would use for the rest of their lives in the church. And that's what Jesus wants us to do as a church. That's what he wants us to do as Christians. He wants us to do good works and to preach the gospel. That's what they were doing. Do good works and preach the gospel. That mission has never changed. And it is because we do those two activities that God's kingdom is expanded. The people respond to the love of God. 
when we do good works and we preach the gospel. You read about this in, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Peter's preaching to Cornelius, the first Gentile, first non-Jewish guy who got saved. Cornelius had a vision, and Peter came over and explained the gospel to him. And this was part of Peter's presentation of the gospel to, Cornel to Cornelius. He said, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them and we are witnesses. Same, same methodology that Jesus had his disciples picked up on. Jesus went about doing good and healing those that were oppressed, and we are his witnesses. We tell the story about them. We preach the gospel. So if you're one of the disciples in Mark 6, just a few days ago, Jesus sent you into some villages. You went and you preached the gospel. You, through the power of Jesus, no power of your own, you healed people. You went back and reported this. Man, you're on cloud nine. This is a fantastic victory. We're doing the same things Jesus is doing. Then you get into a boat. You go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but the crowd follows you, and the crowd gets larger and larger and larger. By the time you get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there's 5,000 men, not including their uh, the wives and the kids. There's probably twelve to 20,000 people there. And it's late in the day and they're hungry. And the disciples say to Jesus, what are you going to do about this? Send them all home. Jesus said, no, you feed them. We don't have anything. We just have a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. How are we going to feed these people? Jesus blesses the food and it multiplies. And all however many thousands of people get fed. So you just had this incredible victory in the villages, preaching the gospel, healing the sick. Jesus did, just fed 5,000 people, and now things are just going to get better, right? Now, now Jesus puts you in a boat, and he sends you back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he sends you right into a storm. Right into a storm. And by the way, he's not in the boat with you. It's just you and 11 other men right there in the storm. And this tells us a pattern, I think, that we can always expect in life, and it's this. When you have a spiritual victory, when something's really going good in your life, be prepared for the storm that's coming. Life really is experientially like a roller coaster. There's good points and there's really bad points. And when you have a big victory, when you're riding high on the mountain, guess what? There's coming a valley. Satan doesn't like it, or God wants to test you, or something's going to happen that things are not going to always be up there on, on cloud nine. And, and we saw this earlier with the disciples. In fact, there was another issue with the, with the boat. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching, a fantastic day of teaching. What does Jesus do? He tells the disciples, get in the boat, and what happens? They encounter a storm. Same kind of thing here. Look at verse 45 in Mark chapter 6. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Jump down to verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. You know, the reality is you face some very unique challenges individually. and we, We're facing some challenges as a church. We're not going to run away from those challenges that we face. We're going to face them head on, but uh, sometimes even as a church body, we hit, hit some highs and we hit some lows. 
and we're facing some challenges as a church, the issue is always this, whether we see the challenges that we face either individually or as a church from God's perspective. Do we see it from God's perspective? And the issue is always faithfulness. Are we going to be faithful when things are bad? If we're faithful, we have then put ourselves in the position of being able to be led by the Spirit of God, and He will direct us as to how we should go, where we should go, and how we should engage our lives. So Jesus had these disciples. He put them in the boat. Why? Why did Jesus make them head right into the coming storm? Because everything Jesus did was to prepare the disciples for after he was gone. And he needs us to learn this same lesson, that there are storms of life that will come every once in a while. Look at verse 46. Go back up there, and it says, And after he had taken leave of the disciples of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. This is significant. We don't know exactly what Jesus prayed for, but we do know this. Every other time in Mark's gospel that Jesus prayed, it was for guidance. And I, I have ten, tendency and reason to believe that Jesus is praying for guidance here as well. And he prayed, Jesus prayed after he encountered very difficult experiences in ministry. When he was rejected, what did he do? He got away and he prayed. What next, Lord? What next, Father? And now he experiences great victory. And what's his response? He prays. And it should teach us something, that the lesson for us is that we must absolutely pray at all times. You know, it, it's easy when things are going really well, when you've got lots of money in the bank, when your family's healthy, when everything's just fine and dandy, it's easy to forget God, isn't it? You know, I, every, everything's fat and happy, everything's just perfect, you know. Uh, and so there's not that pressing need that we experience or we sense that calls us to get on our knees before God. And I've experienced this, too, on the other end. When things are really bad, it's easy to sort of get into a mental funk and start thinking wrong and even forget God at that point. You know, I mean, typically we think, okay, when things are bad, that's when we call out to God. Not always. Sometimes when things are bad, we just like to wallow around in our muck and mire and have a pity party and just forget about God at that point. And uh, the, the temptation is to forget to pray for the things are good, for the things are bad. And what is there anything that's easier in the world to do than to pray? I don't think so. I mean, how difficult is it to just stop and say, Father, here's what's going on in my life. How difficult is that? That's the easiest thing in the world, isn't it? Why do we resist that so much? It's because we have a fleshly nature that battles and rages within us, and we have an enemy that preys on that and wants to feed that fleshly nature and suppress the Spirit of God. And so Jesus teaches us here that it's critically important to pray during times of victory, during times of struggle. Verses 47 and 48. After he went up on the mountain to pray, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And Jesus, he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, that's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., okay, they didn't have their Evinrood, they're going by hand, they're, they're doing their best, they're making zero progress. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And the next sentence bothers me. He meant to pass by them. Okay, so here's the picture. Jesus is on the land. He sees them out in the distance, obviously by the moonlight. They're struggling. They can't make any, any headway against this wind. So what's Jesus' response? He's going to go out there. He walks on the water. And once he gets there, he intends to keep on going. He doesn't intend to get in the boat. He doesn't say, howdy, boys. Follow me. What in the world is going on? I believe that this is what's going on. I believe that Jesus was testing their understanding of him. Because as we see throughout the rest of this story, this story is less about walking on the water than it is about the disciples understanding who Jesus really is. And by the way, they failed the test. At this point, they didn't get it. I think he was testing their understanding of him. Look at verses 49 and 50. Here's what we see. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. They had a wrong understanding of who Jesus was. They had a wrong understanding of what was going on. Let me tell you what a right understanding would have been. They should have, if they had some spiritual sense about them, and I'm not casting judgment on them because I think I would have been right in the same boat, figuratively and literally, as them. But if they had a right understanding, by seeing Jesus walking on the water, immediately their heart should have trusted they should have trusted him. I mean, think about it. If he could send you into a village and you put your hand on somebody and they're healed and you preach the gospel and they respond and you've got some 15, 20,000 people that are hungry and Jesus can take just a smidgen of food and feed everybody and these experiences that I just mentioned just happened the day before and now you see him walking on the water your response should be trust why should they fear the waves when he's trampling the waves under his feet why should they fear the waves you see in scripture there's only one person who can walk on water. In the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible talks about someone who walked on water. And the Old Testament talks about this. And we read about it in Job chapter 9. And I want to read to you what Job said in Job 9. Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? 
If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He got, he's talking about God. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains, and they know it not. He who overturns mountains in his anger. Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Who commands the sun and it does not rise. Who seals up the stars. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. If these disciples in the boat had known their scriptures, they would have known that there's only one person who can trample the waves of the sea, and it's God. They should have picked up on the clue that the man walking on the water was God himself and no one else. But they didn't see that. They should have known that God was in their midst. But what was their understanding? It wasn't one of trust it was one of fear they thought that jesus was a ghost they thought that he was an apparition they thought that he was a phantasm or they thought maybe that he was a sea demon back in that day demons some demons were believed to live in the sea dangerous things are down there weird creatures are down there probably some demons down there and here's this guy he's walking on the water what in the world is this Instead of them looking at Jesus walking on the water going, Hooray! They screamed like little girls in panic. They were shaken to the core. Grown men, some of whom made their living on that lake in the boat. They were scared out of their mind. They didn't get who Jesus was. Look at verses 50 and 51 in Mark 6. Jesus immediately spoke to them and he said to them, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. When Jesus said, It is I, it means more than, Hey, it's just little old me. He wasn't simply identifying himself as, as Jesus. But when those words, it is I, are coupled with the words, take heart, have no fear, what it always means is, trust me, I am God. I am God. Listen to Isaiah 41, verse 4 and verse 13 says this, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. The disciples should have known that when Jesus said, take heart, it is I. Have no fear. That he was saying, I am God. I'm with you. Same book, Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. 
And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jesus, repeatedly in this story, was telling his disciples, giving his disciples different clues. Obvious clues if these men had a spiritual nature about them at this point in their lives, but they did not. Let me ask you today, what's troubling you today? What are you struggling with today? Whatever it is, financial, things in your children's lives, your grandkids' lives, things in your marriage, things at work, whatever it may be, whatever you're struggling with, the Lord says to you, take heart. It is I, do not fear. You can trust in the Lord, your God. Verses 51 and 52 continue. He got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. The disciples missed every single clue. At this point in their lives they believed Jesus to be a wonder worker. At this point they had no idea that he was God in the flesh. Scripture actually says that their hearts were hardened. This is a phrase that's used of God's enemies. This is a phrase that's used of Pharaoh. This is a phrase that's used of unbelievers. This is a phrase that's used of Pharisees. Their hearts were hardened. And it teaches us a lesson. These guys were followers of Jesus, and yet their hearts ended up in the same place as God's enemies. And the lesson for us is that you might be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you better guard your heart. Because you can get to a point where you can become unbelieving in what God's promises are for you that day. Where you can begin to think wrong thoughts, where you can begin to believe Satan's lies. And Satan, once you believe his lies, can actually begin to harden your heart against God and against his truth. And so even as believers, we need to be cautious We need to be ever fearful that we might stumble and fall and be trapped into a pit that our enemy has created for us. Let me ask you today, how many, or how do you think people would respond to Jesus if he was on earth today? I mean, if Jesus came today instead of 2,000 years ago and he walked into the modern hospitals that we have, they didn't have those back then, modern hospitals, and he cleared it out. I mean, people in ICU hooked up to machines. He heals them. They walk out. What do you think people's response would be? Do you think that they would be any more believing than the people in Jesus' day? I think think that they would not be. In verses 53 to 56, right after this episode, they make their way over to Gennesaret. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever he heard that they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. People were desperate 
absolutely desperate for healing. There was no modern medicine like we know it today. They lined the streets of sick people, hoping that Jesus would pass by. You see, for many people in that day, Jesus was nothing more than a magical quick fix. And I think we see the same kind of response today. Jesus, fix my marriage. Jesus, fix my disease. Jesus, fix my teenager. Jesus, fix my workplace. We come to God because he's the great fixer. And all we want is a temporary quick fix. And here's the real miracle of the story. Jesus did it. As many as touched his garment, the ends of his garment, they were made whole. Whoever touched Jesus was made well. And I think that's a danger for us, actually. You may come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I got these problems, fix them all. The danger is that he'll do it. And I say it's a danger because could it be that at the day of judgment, it'll be a sign against you? That Jesus fixed my marriage and my relationships and my workplace and my, he, he did all these things for me all throughout my life. And what did I do with Jesus? Did I truly trust him? Did I truly know him? I experienced his love. I experienced his kindness. Could it be on the day of judgment that Jesus would say to us, you knew who I was. You came to me from help, for help. You wanted my help, but you did not follow me. The question that the disciples had to wrestle with, and they weren't there at this point yet, was who is Jesus to you? Is he the fixer of your problems? Or is he your Lord and Savior? Do you really know him? Does he know you? Does the Lord Jesus Christ know us? The good news about God is that he is a loving father. He is a loving father. He sent his son to die on the cross for us. He wants to know us. He wants for you to know him in a personal way. 